0: Welcome to the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. Remember, your direct support makes our show possible, and you can directly support this podcast by visiting shillingshow.com and then clicking on the Patreon banner at the top of the page to make a monthly contribution. We appreciate your support. The Shilling Show Unleashed podcast welcomes Jeff Kinley, co-host of the Prophecy Pros podcast and host of television's Jeff Kinley Live, author of the new book, God's Grand Finale, Wrath, Grace, and Glory in Earth's Last Days. And Jeff Kinley, thank you for joining us today on the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast.
1: Rob, it's always great to be with you. Thank you for having me.
0: You know, your book talks about revelation, and I want to start there so that people who don't really understand the term are maybe a little foggy. What is Revelation and the book of Revelation?
1: Yeah, well, revelation, the word revelation means uh, that God is revealing some sort of truth to us. And, of course, if you think about it, revelation is the last book of the Bible. And so God is concluding his written revelation uh, with this climactic crescendo of truth to us. And so basically, revelation is God's last word to humanity.
0: And there's a purpose that God gave us this information, and a lot of people struggle with it. In fact, you, you talk about in the book... You know, some people approach this with fear, but we should approach it with faith. So let's talk about the purpose for it and then how we as Christians would approach this information.
1: Absolutely. You know, God wrote this book so that we could understand, so that we could know, so that we would not be fearful because God in Bible prophecy essentially writes history in advance. And he wants us to know what's going to happen toward the end of time so that we can have comfort that he's in charge of all of it. And so the book of Revelation really has many components to it. But one of it uh, is, I always like to say, Rob, that that Bible prophecy never breeds fear. It only builds faith. And the purpose of the book of Revelation is to build up the believer, uh, not to uh, instill fear within them. So the book does that really from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 22.
0: For people who are fearful, and I know some who are Christians, but they're very fearful. In fact, there are many churches that even avoid studying this book. I'd love for you to address that, the churches and also the individuals who look at this information and are deathly afraid of it.
2: Yeah,
1: and and I understand a certain degree of that, because as you get into Revelation, you get into a a lot of apocalyptic literature. Uh, Really, chapters 6 through 19 are all filled with imagery, with some word pictures, uh, some symbols, uh, things that describe the end of time. And of course, it's a time when God is going to release his judgments upon the world, that he's held back for, for centuries, really. And so there is a, a sense of uh, a foreboding dread uh, about that time. Uh, of course, I believe that the church, the body of Christ, will not have to suffer through God's wrath through that, will be absent during that time. But it's a it's a fear, I think, is and sometimes is well-founded, because people have tended to present the book of Revelation, I think, Rob, with a sense of sensationalism sometimes, and maybe a sense of doom and dread and that type of thing. Uh, but in reality, what God does in the book—and he begins before that whole series of judgments. He takes John to heaven in chapter four and really tells him, Hey, there's a throne here. In fact, the word throne is mentioned 13 times in 11 verses that there's a throne here that's it's occupied, it's standing, God's in control, He's sovereign over everything. And so that's why we don't have to fear because God is essentially steering history towards its appointed end. And so, uh, and the other reason I think too is, is because there is a lot of confusing language from the first read as you go through Revelation. And that's why we have to kind of pull over and park and do some study, uh, like we do in other part, portions of Scripture, to really find out what does this actually mean. And so I think that probably turns some people away, because they know they're going to have to spend a lot of time studying it. And for a lot of Christians, they, they tend to avoid uh, the whole Bible study part. So uh, I want to encourage believers to just get into it. And, you know, t- taking a book like God's Grand Finale it- it gives you sort of a guide through it. I mean, it's like walking through a, a thorny trail. It kind of helps you through uh, some of those tough parts.
0: The interesting thing, one of the many interesting things about Revelation in this book of the Bible is that there's a blessing promised to those who read it. And I think that's lost. And, and particularly as we were talking about churches who avoid this, but even to individuals. So how would this blessing manifest or what did God mean by that?
1: That's a great question. Yeah, in in chapter 1 verse 3 it says blessed are those who who reads and those who hear the prophecy and those who heed the words that are written in it. And so the whole book begins by saying if you read this book, you will be blessed. If you hear it being taught to you, you'll be blessed. And if you obey the commands that are written then you'll be blessed. And so I think God knew intuitively that we would tend to avoid some of the things in Revelation. And so God sort of front end loads this blessing saying, look, I've got a special thing for you if you'll go through this book. And I think part of the blessing is this. I think there's two parts to it here. The first is that you will know what's going to happen. It gives you a heads up on history. You know what's going to happen to the nations, what's happening to humanity, what's happening in heaven, uh, what's happening in terms of the return of Jesus Christ, what heaven is like, what eternity is going to be like. All these things are found in Revelation. And that in itself is a huge blessing. But the second part of the blessing, I think, is really the theme of God's grand finale, the book, is that you get to actually know God in the book. And so I highlight 13 different attributes of God throughout uh, this book here, Rob, that really helps us engage Christ. And so, ironically, Revelation, instead of being a book of fear, ends up being a book that really is more of a devotional, Uh, we end up knowing who God is and drawing closer to him through his pages.
0: Jeff, before we get into some of the specifics of the book, I would wanted to go to this because there are many people, and I've talked to them before, who go to churches or who themselves believe that this book is number one allegory or number two has already happened. And I'd love for you to talk about those two points.
1: The allegory part is this, is that when we look at all of the past prophecies that God made in the Old Testament and even some in the New Testament, all of those were fulfilled literally and precisely and exactly as they were written in the scriptures. And so when we look to the future, we look at these prophecies and we go, well, number one, they haven't been fulfilled literally yet in history. And that, that's where I would address the idea that people say they've already been fulfilled, is that uh, when we look at church history, we don't see these things being fulfilled. We don't see Christ returning. We don't see the Antichrist, the mark of the beast the releasing of the seal trumpet and bold judgments. From that, we can conclude that these prophecies must be have a future fulfillment. But to the first point is that if all the previous prophecies of Christ's first coming were literally fulfilled, Bethlehem, born of a virgin, prophesied to die the way he did, all these things, then we would expect all the future prophecies to also be fulfilled literally and exactly as promised. And so that's sort of a Uh, what I would just call a consistent Bible hermeneutic or an interpretive method. As you go through the scripture, you just say, God, you're consistently fulfilling your word. In other words, the plain sense of God's word is being fulfilled in all previous prophecies. So that's why we would expect the future ones to be fulfilled as well.
0: You have a section of the book that's so interesting to me. It's about counterfeit messengers. And of course, the Bible told us we would be facing this in the last days, and also fake news, which is a new, a relatively new term, but certainly applicable. And I first want to go to the church as a whole, the church in America. I love the term that you use, governed by ignorance and emotion. And uh, that's not the way we ought to be governed, but would you go into some detail on that?
1: So in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, Jesus addresses the seven churches in Asia Minor. Essentially, those churches, I think, represent Not just the church throughout the age, but really different kinds of churches today. And, you know, he addresses each of them. And this is, you know, keep in mind, this is about two generations past the crucifixion. So, you know, by the time Paul wrote uh, Ephesians in in the New Testament, they were doing great. They were loving God. They were getting along with each other. Everything was fine. By the time you get to 95 AD, when, when Jesus gave these words to John about the church at Ephesus, she had lost her first love. She had drifted away from Christ. And so Christ addresses individual problems in five of these seven churches. And essentially, he says, look, you're drifting doctrinally. You're drifting morally. You're drifting relationally. In other words, you no longer resemble yourself. It's almost like, you know, someone who's a great celebrity and a huge star, and all of a sudden you see him on the sidewalk— you know, begging for food, you're like, whoa, how did you get here? Well, that's exactly where the churches are in Revelation 2 and 3. And so Christ delivers uh, to them a, a commendation, but also a condemnation, and gives them sort of the remedy about how to get back on track again. And I think that's where the church in America is today. I mean, specifically, I think the Church of Laodicea kind of describes the church today. We're, we're sort of apathetic, we're lethargic, uh, we are driven more by emotion, which you know, is indicative of the fact of this is what goes on on stage each week. It's more motion driven than truth and, you know, really reaching the heart. And so I think the church has to get back to the Bible and not really follow some of the trends that we're following in America today, putting on shows on Sunday morning, but getting back to let's just teach the Bible and let God do his uh, supernatural work in our hearts.
0: So something else that's going on along those lines, Jeff, is that the many of the churches today, particularly some of the mainstream denominations, are distorting some of our foundational biblical teachings to adapt to culture. This is really disheartening, but it also sends a very confusing message to the world.
1: No, it really does. Well, what it does, it completely dilutes the gospel itself uh, to where, like if you were to dilute a glass of tea so much, it just tastes like water. Well, What we've done is we've essentially watered down the gospel by looking at the world and saying, how can we get the world to like us and to like our God? And, of course, that's antithetical to the entire message of the New Testament is that Jesus never said, try to get the world to like you. Jesus actually said, if you act like I act, if you're like me, the world will actually hate you. And so there's actually, you know, the gospel is a very uh, confrontational uh, body of truth. It, it challenges people's lives. It challenges their uh, their sin, it calls them to repentance. And uh, that's not the message that we're hearing from a lot of denominations. In fact, many of them are are, are really compromising to the point where they're accepting uh, homosexuals into the pulpit, They're marrying transgenders, embraced abortion, uh, and different things like this that that are really so com- incredibly contrary to what the Word of God says. So in that sense, the church today has done, like many of the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, they've drifted completely from the original message that Jesus gave us.
0: There's something else, and this one's rather difficult to talk about because so many people hang their hat on the popular phenomenon of heavenly visitations that really don't support what the Bible says about heaven. So you hear a book, this guy went to heaven for 90 minutes, and it sounds really nice. And so people latch on to that, that this is their great hope. And yet, how do we handle that when these things don't comport with the Bible?
1: Well, and that's part of the confusion is that you'll have Christian publishers who will publish books. And anytime a Christian publisher publishes a book and it becomes a runaway bestseller, people automatically think, well, it must be true. Mm -hmm. But we have to calibrate what we believe, not with what publishers do or what people say on TV or podcasts or radio, but what does the Word of God say? It's interesting, Rob, when we go to the Word of God, especially in chapter 1, when Jesus gives a vision of himself to John, the Jesus we see in chapter 1 is radically different from the Jesus that these people claim to see in heaven when they go there. And so these reports that people have have come back, in fact, when Paul went to heaven in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he wasn't even allowed to talk about what he saw, Mm -hmm. uh, because God said, you'll become proud, so he gave him this thorn in the flesh. And there are others who have gone to heaven who've given uh, radically different descriptions of the kind that are described in these modern-day books. Now, they sell books, uh, they give comfort, uh, but is it biblical comfort? And so what I just tell people is when someone claims to have this kind of experience, or a vision. The problem is, is they cannot be authenticated. In other words, we can't know for sure if this is really just a human dream, a human thought, a wish, a projection of something, or if it's actual revelation from God. So the only thing we really know that God has revealed to us is what's written down in this Bible. So when you go to heaven uh, in chapters uh, 21 and 22, it's not the heaven that's described in these books. So I'm going to go with the Word of God and not some of these supposed heavenly visits. We
0: should talk then about what heaven is like, according to the Bible, and these visits to heaven. How is it described?
1: Yeah, that's the beauty of it. In in chapters 21 and 22, Jesus talks about the, the new heavens and the new earth, and that he's going to recreate the earth and give us a whole new existence here. And you know, part of what he does there, which is really interesting, is that he doesn't just describe heaven but he describes what's not going to be in heaven. Uh, he goes on to talk about in chapter 21, there's going to be uh, no more tears, no more death, no more crying, no more pain or mourning or any of the things that cause the some of the problems that and the disturbances in our lives that we have today. Those things are all gone. And he describes heaven as being with God, uh, that God will make his tabernacle among them uh, and uh, we will be with him. He will be our God, we will be His people. Uh, he talks about the New Jerusalem. Uh, that's the Father's house that Jesus referred to in John 14. This uh, beautiful celestial city coming down out of heaven. Uh, of course, there's a new earth. Uh, there's there's animals that are there. Uh, there's joy. There's peace. Uh, there's the absence of all things on this earth that cause us grief, that cause us mourning, that cause us pain. And you know, it's hard for us, I think, sometimes, Rob, to really picture what that's like because that's all we've known on this planet uh, are just the physical things. Uh, but God gives us a great a future and a great hope, which is another reason why we ought to dive into Revelation because we find out what our eternal destiny is really going to be like. as believers.
0: The Shilling Show Unleashed podcast continues with our guest Jeff Kinley in just a moment. Support this podcast online at shillingshow.com. We continue now. Jeff Kinley is our guest. The new book is God's Grand Finale, Wrath, Grace and Glory in Earth's Last Days. There is a set of characters that are described and I call them characters just uh, loosely because we need to describe who they are. The Antichrist, the beast, the false prophet, and many people who are not familiar with Revelation sometimes use the terms interchangeably or don't understand the distinct purpose and position of each.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, the Bible talks about there's going to be a final one-world government uh, in the end times that's going to be headed or led by a man called the Antichrist or the man of sin, the man of lawlessness, the son of perdition. He's called many names in Scripture, but we learn much about him in the book of Daniel, uh, also in the book of Revelation, particularly in chapter 13, and uh, this man is going to essentially be Satan incarnate. Uh, he's going to be someone who is inhabited by Satan. And the reason for that is because Satan, uh, for some 6,000-plus years, has has longed to rule the earth. He wants to be worshipped as God is worshipped. And so that's the reason he was booted out of heaven to begin with. So he's been attempting uh, to jumpstart uh, his reign upon the earth, uh, really, since the Garden of Eden. Satan will inhabit this man. He'll be able to control a one-world government. Accompanying him will be a man that's called the false prophet or the, or the second beast. And this is essentially uh, Satan's henchman or the Antichrist PR man. Uh, he does all of the, the supernatural deeds and acts that are accompanied uh, with the Antichrist. He calls down fire from heaven. He promotes the Antichrist to the world. And the ultimate goal there in game, Rob, is to have the whole world worship Antichrist, uh, meaning Satan incarnate. And so it, it essentially mimics the, the Trinity, uh with the father son the holy spirit you have satan uh the antichrist and the false prophet and they're key figures in the end times and uh that's uh we're seeing sort of the the infrastructure of that one world government uh, begin to come together even now.
0: We should talk about that a little more explicitly the one world government and also the one world religion because there's movement in that area as well. So how do you see these playing out in uh, earth's last days?
1: Well, globalism is a, is really a hot button right now. Uh, you see it talked about uh, everywhere from the world health organization to the world economic forum, uh, to the United nations, to the European union, to America, uh, they're all on board with moving towards bringing the world together under one umbrella The the world economic forum particularly is, is pushing forward its agenda. Uh, our own president is on board with it. He's trying to, to unite us to other nations. Uh, also economically as well with the whole digital currency and the central digital bank as well fed now that's that's the first step uh, towards that all that to say is all of the world is seeking to unite together to dissolve their differences their borders so that they can have a one world government and so that's there've been calls for that ever since um really ever since the United Nations came together. Mm-hmm. But more recently, uh, after the COVID pandemic uh, hit, there were immediate calls for a one-world government. They call it a governance system. And so that's where we're headed right now, and, and uh, there are just incremental steps being taken uh, toward that. Also, with the idea of a one-world religion, I think what's going to happen is, is they're gonna, there's going to have to be a worldwide catastrophe that I believe is the rapture of the church is going to disrupt life on planet Earth it's going to really cause people to fall under a delusion, and this delusion will cause them to want to worship the same thing. And ultimately, whether it takes its expression through some sort of synchronistic uniting of of Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, or whether it's some sort of new type of self-help religion, it's really unclear at this point. Ultimately, Satan's goal is to get people so deluded So that at the midpoint of the tribulation, they end up worshiping the Antichrist himself. And that essentially will be the one world religion for the last three and a half years of the tribulation.
0: I'd like to get into the rapture of the church. And today, of course, we see a lot of discussion about this. In fact, I know people in churches who deny that this is even something to look forward to. And yet many of us look at this as the blessed hope. So let's talk about the rapture and how we know when it's going to take place and who's going to be taken.
1: Yeah. Well, the Bible is very, very clear that at some point, Jesus Christ is going to return in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and take his bride up to heaven. So that's undeniable. So everyone has to believe in a rapture. The point is, when does this rapture occur? And there's basically three different views on it. Some believe that it occurs before God unleashes his judgment during the seven-year tribulation period. Others believe it happens at the midway point, when Satan enacts an Antichrist, acts the 666 mark, and then some believe that, that Christ comes at the end of the tribulation in conjunction with his second coming. I personally take the view that the rapture will occur before the tribulation uh, based on what Jesus said and wrote to, uh, through Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, and chapter 5, verse 9, that essentially says, Rob, that we will be delivered from the wrath that is coming. Uh, and the wrath that is coming in that context is the tribulation period. Uh, Also, in Revelation 3.10, Jesus uh, promised the church that she would be uh, removed from the hour of testing that's about to come upon the whole world. And so when you consider the fact that, you know, Jesus told his his disciples in the upper room in John 14, I will come again, receive you to myself, that's the rapture event. And so I think that as you look at Scripture, the whole of Scripture— and there's so much to unpack concerning the rapture, but essentially the question is this, will the church have to endure God's wrath during the tribulation period? And I don't believe that God will cause us to suffer his wrath, because Jesus Christ has already suffered the wrath of God for us, and there's now no condemnation, Romans 8, 1 says, for those who are in Christ Jesus. So those are just some very surface, but very Dense reasons why I believe that the rapture will occur before that. Now, there are other people who, godly people, who take the other views, uh, but to me, they don't line up with what Scripture says.
0: Well, the thing that happens after the rapture, considering that it takes place on the timeline you described, There are a number of things that put the earth in peril, and some of them sound just fantastical. The cosmic destruction, the flying demon scorpions, the 200 million demonic cavalry. So let's talk about some of those things that are going to be coming upon the earth as God's judgment.
1: Yeah, basically the tribulation period begins in Revelation 6-1 with the rider on the white horse who we identify as the Antichrist because he comes conquering, but he does so peacefully. Uh, this matches up with, with Daniel 9:27, 27, uh, where the Antichrist will come and strike a peace treaty uh, with Israel. If you think about it in the context of, if the rapture happens, and there's hundreds of millions of people that have been taken to heaven, it's gonna plunge the world into chaos, into absolute emotional catastrophe. So there's gonna to need to be a fix-it man, somebody to come on the scene, to bring a sense of relative peace and calm to the world, I believe antichrist will do that but that's the first judgment the the sealed judgments will come first then after that comes the trumpet judgments then the bowl judgments and these are a series of god's anger and god's wrath against unbelievers on the earth it's a time of great punishment a time of great peril. it's a time when god is is basically as patience is, has run out on planet Earth. And so uh, it's going to be a horrible, horrible time. But yes, there are going to be celestial signs in the sky. There's going to be catastrophic uh, judgments coming from the heavens. The Bible tells us that the oceans will turn uh, to blood. The rivers will turn to blood. There'll be the loss of green grass, uh, the loss of food, the great worldwide famine, destruction, death. Half of the world's population will die during that time. And so, yeah, it's a horrible, horrible time, which is why people don't want to go through that. They really want to make sure that they're they believers in Jesus so they don't have to go through all that. So, yeah, it's a horrific time of judgment. But for those who, who refuse to repent, they're going to have to suffer through all of those judgments.
0: So following all those judgments, uh, Christ comes back. That's the second coming. And then we have the millennial kingdom which is really an exciting time for me to think about. Tell us about the millennial kingdom and what things will be like.
1: It's the answer to to the prayer of every Christian who's ever prayed the Lord's Prayer. When you said, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I think within the heart of every believer right now, Rob, it's just a sense of, God, would you just come back and make things right again? Uh, just get rid of the evil, get rid of the the sin and the wickedness that's in our world and just come and reign and rule. You know, we've never known a perfect government uh, in our lifetime, but during the millennial kingdom, Jesus will sit on his throne in Jerusalem. He'll reign from Jerusalem. There'll be righteousness and peace and justice. In Isaiah 9, 6, the verse we love to To quote around Christmas time, for a son is uh, born to us, a child is given. But the very next verse says, and the government will rest upon his shoulders. And scripture tells us he'll rule the nations with a rod of iron. So there'll be harmony, there'll be peace, there'll be justice, and we'll know one another. We'll know everyone will know Christ uh, during that time uh, who trusts in him. And so uh, it's just a time when he'll remake part of the earth for us to live. And so that'll happen a thousand years that Christ will reign upon the earth. It'll really be a beautiful time of relaxation, of rest in God, and enjoying Christ and the earth in ways we never have before.
0: There's so much more to tell of the story, and I hope people will get a copy of God's grand finale, Wrath, Grace, and Glory in Earth's Last Days. Jeff Kinley, if people want to get a copy of the book or find out more about your work, your podcast, your television show, tell us how we can do those things.
1: Yeah, just simply go to jeffkinley.com and all the information is right there on the website for you.
0: Thank you so much for sharing your time with us today on the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast, Jeff Kinley. It's certainly a message of hope for all of us.
1: Thank you, Rob. Pleasure to be with you.
0: That concludes another edition of the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Visit us online at SchillingShow.com where you can directly support this podcast by clicking on the Patreon banner at the top of the page and making a monthly donation. Your support is essential for the continuation of the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Until next time...